0: If I haven't met you, my name's Jono and I'm the the pastor of this church and um, as the pastor of this church, I am fully committed to what both Jimmy and Ali have been talking about this morning, that is that we exist to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus and one of the things that in the past has frustrated me and irritated me and discouraged me about being the pastor of this church is just how often... We need to remind Christians that they exist for that purpose, to make all of life all about Jesus. Because the truth is, if you're a Christian, all of life is all about Jesus. And if all of life is not all about Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Um, The Bible makes that fairly clear. Over the last 2,000 years, we've tried to make it as gray and foggy as possible, but that's the truth. And if you read, Um, books like the book of Acts, you're going to see that over and over again. People become Christians and then they make all of life all about Jesus. And so it's been discouraging for me just how often we need to repeat that mission statement to the people in our church and just how often it leaks out of us, right? And I was discouraged about that until very recently when I picked up uh, a book in the New Testament called Paul's Second Letter to Timothy, This is the Apostle Paul, uh, who we're going to read about in a few weeks' time, was a persecutor of the church, killed Christians, had them taken off to jail. Jesus appears to him. He gets dramatically converted, changes his name from Saul to Paul, becomes the greatest missionary that church has ever seen, right? And he, at the end of his life, is writing this letter to his, who he calls his son in the faith, one of his little prodigy, his disciple, Timothy. And at the end of Paul's life, And by this stage, Timothy is an elder in the church in Ephesus. He's probably 40-something years old. And Paul says something to him which would be condescending if it wasn't so necessary. Let's check it out. In 2 Timothy, he says this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. So you've got the greatest missionary who's ever lived at the end of his life speaking to one of the senior churchmen in the early church. And he says to him, remember Jesus Christ. There might be some in our church who hear us over and over and over again say, this church's um, mission is to make all of life all about Jesus, and hear us going over and over again and saying, well, that yeah, we got that. What's the next thing? We've got that. Let's move on to 2.0. And the point is, no, you never get past the gospel. You never get past the first step, which is to make all of life all about Jesus. Paul to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. And the reason that this is so important for us is because we saw last week, as we opened this book up for the first time, we saw in the first chapter, in verse 8, that Paul, uh, sorry, uh, Luke, who wrote this uh, historical account of the early church helpfully gives us what I think is probably the key to understanding the whole book. In verse 8, he says this, and we saw this last week. You will receive, this is Jesus' words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the church begins with Pentecost, as we saw last week, and Jesus pours out his Spirit on the early disciples and gives them this Charge. This is their mission statement, which is, we've just modified it for our own purposes. All of life, all about Jesus. His mission statement to them is that they will be witnesses to his lordship. Jesus is not dead and buried, he is risen and ascended. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, and Christians are called to be witnesses to that fact. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of Caroline Springs, the ends of the earth. And the reason it's so important for us to be reminded by Paul to remember Jesus, to remember the gospel, and to be reminded by Jesus through Luke that that this is the central mission uh, that we have, the reason that it's important for us to remember that as we open the book of Acts is because there's so much going on in Acts that could distract us. It's not that it's bad stuff, it's incredible stuff, it's amazing stuff, it's miracles and riots and shipwrecks and crazy goings on, but we don't want to be distracted from the central purpose of this book, which is to remind us that we're to be witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. And so the way that we have sort of boiled this book down into three lines is to say this, this is the meta theme of this book is that Acts is all about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. And nothing has changed from the early church, the very beginnings of the church, the first sermon in the church, as we're going to read about this morning, to today. This is still true. Our church in Caroline Springs is ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. It's so important that we're reminded of the fundamentals of our faith. Why? Because we're so quick to forget them. They really do leak. I remember this past week um, of... I was reminded of... Um, I think about seven or eight years ago, I was asked to speak at this um, the, launch for a new church. Um, it's now called City on a Hill... And at that point, it was a small group of people, and we were on this retreat launch thing for the church, and um, I was asked to speak, and I spoke um, for about an hour about what this church should be, and, um, and all that I thought God wanted to do through this brand new church in the city of Melbourne, and, um, and by the end of it, I was pretty pleased with myself, and um, we went to lunch afterwards, and people were coming to me and saying, you know, that was the best Talk we've ever heard, and I was like, "Yes, well, you're welcome." And um. And, and then, that went for a couple of days. That that launch retreat, and then I got back to work, and I was a student at the time, so I had uh, um. I forget what he's called. He's like an overseer, right? And um, and he met with me. He was at the thing that we were we had just done, and he was there during this you know, life-changing talk, the best that had probably ever been done um, in modern times. And he sat down with me and he said, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a really great talk. There was one problem with it. I was like, okay, one problem, that's not bad. He said, um, you could have done that whole talk without opening your Bible. I was like, "Ah, oh, damn it. It's so easy for us, for every one of us, to forget the fundamentals of our faith, the 101. And so at this church, yes, we will go into deep things and use big words, and we want to plumb the depths of the mysteries of God, but we will not forget the fundamentals of our faith. And this book over and again will remind us of the centrality of the gospel and of our mission to make all of life all about Jesus. So with that said, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that God would not let us lose sight of that and um, ask him to speak to us now. Let's pray. Father, we want to be submissive to your word. Uh, we know that we're just so prone to wander from it. We're just so prone to go our own way. And even when we're trying to be faithful to you, we can so easily forget the fundamentals of, and so I pray this morning that you'd speak powerfully through your servant Luke and through your servant Peter, and that you'd teach us and change us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you are here last week, you would have heard that um, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Luke, the historian, who we saw has been since described as one of the greatest historians in human history that comes from both secular and Christian sources. He, his history is incredibly lucid and to the point he was a physician, we're told, and so he has this kind of mind that looks for detail and clarity. And in this historical account of the early church, Luke describes for us the very beginning of the church where, where, where the disciples, about 120 of them at this point, were gathered in, a, in one space the Spirit of God was poured out on them, and he describes it as being like wind and like fire. It was like the whole place was shaken with wind, and it was as if fire was coming down and resting on these people, and they started to speak in languages that they didn't know. They hadn't learned. They were speaking about the wonders of God, and other people who were there from different nationalities and cultural backgrounds were hearing these people speak in their own languages. It was This strange demonstration of God's power at the very beginning of his church. And it obviously confused some people. And so we pick it up and see the response of the people who were there in verse 12 to 13 amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, this is the people who are hearing them speak about the wonders of God in their own languages, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. So this is the response to this incredible event that's happened. Some people are intrigued, some people just think it's a bit of a joke and make fun of it. And in response to their response... Peter steps forward. Now, this is Peter, as Jimmy has told us this morning. This is the same Peter who just a little while ago, as he watches Jesus be arrested and condemned to death, he, in response to that, denies him three times. This is the same Peter who the night before had said to Jesus, even though everyone else... betrays you, I'll stick with you. I'll die for you, Jesus. These other guys, yeah, they'll probably run, but I will stay with you to the end. A few hours later, he's running. A few hours later, he's denying that he even knows Jesus three times. And then we get this beautiful picture in John chapter 21 of the risen Jesus back from the dead, on the beach, having breakfast with his friends, and he looks at Peter and he, he reinstates him. He forgives him. He restores him. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. He says, well, if you love me, feed my sheep. He essentially ordains him to be a minister of the gospel. And so he goes from traitor to restored disciple, and at this point, at the the very moment when he's needed most, when a spokesman is needed to stand up and explain the mysteries of God, Peter steps up, and this is what he says, verse 14 to 15, says this. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Jews would never drink before they ate and Jews would very rarely eat uh, in the morning before 10, 11 o'clock. And so he says, listen, no, no one's been drinking, nobody's drunk. Let me explain to you what's going on here. And he stands up And with a a loud voice, with the courage that's given by the indwelling spirit of God, he explains to them what's going on at this point. And here's what I want you to notice first of all. I want you to notice that shame for past failures doesn't prevent him from doing ministry in God's name. Shame from past failures, which he would have known very well. The shame of denying Jesus after so boldly proclaiming that he would go to the grave with him. That shame doesn't own him. That shame doesn't shackle him. That shame doesn't prevent him from the ministry that Jesus has called him to. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you'll be familiar with that sense of shame and guilt when you realize for the thousandth time how you have failed to live up to your identity as God's child. And if we're not careful, we can allow that shame and that guilt to anchor us and to shackle us and to prevent us from making all of life all about Jesus, to prevent us from being witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. And I want you to see the example of Peter here who hasn't allowed that shame to shackle him. Why? Not because he's got such great self-esteem. Not because he read a few self-help books and overcame it. He, he, he's not shackled Because he understands that the death of Jesus is sufficient to cover his sin. It's not because he sees himself as perfect. It's because he knows he has a perfect sacrifice in the Lord Jesus. So by all means, overcome your shame and guilt and disappointment. By all means, loose yourself from the shackles of, Of that guilt, but make sure you do it on the basis of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, not on the basis of good self esteem. So, on that basis, Peter, filled with the Spirit, stands up with a loud voice. He says, Listen to me. This is important. This is the most important thing you're ever going to hear in your life. Let me explain this to you. And he goes on in verse 16 to 21. Let's read that. He says, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is 800 years before. 800 BC, Joel writes this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Dreams. Prophet Joel, 800 years before, writing these things. And here's what's happening. Some of the things that are, uh, are in that prophecy are happening now in the book of Acts, chapter 2, at the beginning of the church. Some of those things, prophesying, dreaming dreams, visions, the, the Spirit being poured out on his people. Some of these things are, are, are waiting until Jesus comes again at the end of this age. So of so bookmarks for the age of grace from the beginning of the church to the coming day of the Lord when Jesus returns. So Peter says, this is what's happening. God's spirit is being poured out on his people. And some of these strange and crazy and weird and miraculous things are testament to what God is doing. Laying down a marker in salvation history. And some of these things are, going to, are yet to come. We don't know, Peter's thinking, we don't know if this is happening in a week or in a year or in 5,000 years, but here are some of the markers that God is laying down. And it's interesting the context For Joel's words, 800 BC, he's writing in the midst of this plague of locusts that have just assaulted the people of Israel, devastated the land. They're now in this famine, desolation and barrenness. And he says in that context, if you repent, if you call on the name of the Lord, he will save you out of this desolation. And I think that's what Peter is saying to his hearers at this point in Acts chapter 2. In the midst of this desolation that we call life, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Listen, in my role as a pastor, I have this this rare insight into people's lives. I get to see behind the curtain, right? Right? Most people in church and out of church, were are all the same. Most of us carry around with this, this, this great facade. It was great this morning, actually. Uh, I said good morning to someone. I said, how are you doing? And he was like, uh, yeah, good. And, and I saw his wife and saw that he, she knew that he was lying. So I said to her, really, how are you going? And she said, not good. And he was like, yeah, not good. I love that. And I have this opportunity because of my vocation to see behind the facade so often and it's at the same time exhausting and exhilarating but here's what I can tell you for sure and puts paid to the myth perpetuated by the facade here's what I can tell you for sure all of us live in the midst of some measure of desolation all of us to varying degrees in different seasons of life are dealing with the plague of locusts. And so what I I think Peter is saying to us and what I want to say to us in the midst of this plague, in the midst of this desolation and barrenness and famine, hear Peter's words coming from the mouth of Joel 800 years before. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from desolation. So what are you saying? If I become a Christian, everything will be better? No. Just read the rest of the book, you'll see things don't get better. There's imp- imprisonments and beatings and murders for the people who call on the name of the Lord. But remember, Joel is not looking to the present but to the future, the day of the Lord. He's looking to the day when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, restores all things, overcomes all desolation and brokenness. So gather it up. Gather all the threads together. And what do you have? You have broken people. And the promise to these broken people is that if they will only call on the name of the Lord, if they will only witness, confess, To the lordship of the risen Lord Jesus, when that day comes and he restores all things, we ourselves will be restored. We ourselves will be saved. We ourselves will be redeemed and recreated. And in heaven, there will be no plague of locusts. There will be no desolation. There will be no depression. There will be no cancer. There will be no divorce. There will be no brokenness. That is the invitation and the promise that's extended to every single person here this morning, from the oldest to the youngest. That's the promise of the gospel. And it's what Peter wants to extend to us. And it's what I want to extend to us this morning. Let's keep going. Verse 22. To 24, I want to, I want you to see the, the the life, death, and burial of um, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, 22 to 24, fellow Israelites, he says. This is continuing this sermon, his first sermon, the first sermon in the church, as far as we can see. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, you've seen this, you've witnessed this. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Life, death, resurrection. Again, Peter wants to bring us back to the central, central crux—the literal crux of our faith—to the cross. So he says, you, "You guys, listen. You have lived in Jerusalem. You remember Jesus. He's kind of a big deal." You were around when he was doing his ministry. Remember all those miracles and signs that he did? They were God accrediting him. That was God putting his stamp of approval on Jesus. Remember all through the Gospel of John, we taught through this over a year in this church a couple of years ago, and John will, will talk about these signs, the miracles that Jesus did. They were not just existing for their own sake. They were signs pointing us to something. And what they were pointing us to were that Jesus is God. God. He's not just uh, someone with a few tricks up his sleeve. He wasn't just a sage, you know, speaker of wisdom. He wasn't just a hippie Galilean peasant. No, he was God in human flesh. And what Peter is saying is all of those signs that he did throughout his life were God's accreditation of him. This is my son. So that's his life. But it's not just his life, it's his death. So in verse 23, go over. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This, if you allow it to, will blow your mind. Peter is saying, this isn't an accident. Jesus' death this crazy miscarriage of justice, this innocent man being killed in the most excruciating way, this whole thing wasn't an accident. This was God's deliberate plan. God had thought this up. God had planned this out before the world was ever created. Another prophet, Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus, will say this himself that it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was God's plan to destroy his own son. Why? So that we wouldn't have to live in desolation for eternity. So it's his life, it's his death. But it's not enough that he was killed according to God's plan. It wasn't enough that he was killed at the hands of wicked men. Verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Why? Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that poetic language. Just imagine it in your mind, death the blackness and darkness of death, grabbing a hold of Jesus in the grave. He's dead. He's done. He's cold. He's in the tomb. He's been flogged and executed, and death is grabbing a hold of his grave clothes, but death cannot keep its hold on him. It's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why? Because Jesus is the innocent Son of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. Amen? Anyone living a perfect life? Anyone lived a perfect life since I started speaking? (laughs) He lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. He died on the cross, the death that we should die. And God raised him again as his sign of approval, as his vindication. Death couldn't hold him down because God was speaking to us in raising him up. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son, the risen reigning king of the universe. Life, death, resurrection. Peter's putting together this brilliant gospel message. And if you've never heard the gospel, then you're hearing it now. This is what it's all about. Let's skip ahead a little bit, all right? Let's go verse um, 32 and 33. It says this. This is a reiteration of what we've been saying over and over again. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. In case you want to check this out, I'm not just making this up. We're all witnesses of this, exalted to the right hand of God that's risen and reigning. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is the explanation. It's not too much wine. It's the risen and reigning Lord Jesus pouring out his spirit on his people. And when God does something like that, this kind of craziness ensues. This is what you now see and hear. So it's ordinary people filled with the Spirit witnessing to the Lord Jesus. Verse 36 and 37. Let's just keep it moving on because I want to get to you guys doing a bit of work for me in a minute. Okay, so let give you a heads up. You're going to do some work. Verse 36 and 37. Therefore, he continues his sermon. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I wonder if you've ever had this response to a message from God's word. Have you ever... Responded to the gospel being preached with something like this cut to the heart, asking the question, What shall we do? I tell you something for sure. I've been in situations where I have been up the front and I've been speaking, and there have been people in the audience who look like they've got murderous intent in their eyes, and then afterwards I've experienced that vitriol and hatred levelled at me, only once in physical violence from a middle-aged woman, but more often in verbal violence, all right? The gospel is offensive. So if you're doing it right, you're going to get that response from time to time. At other times, by God's grace, I've had something more like this response, cut to the heart, what should I do? The worst response that you can have as someone who speaks the gospel is Mute indifference. What's the most common response from Australians in the 21st century? Have you ever been cut to the heart? To the point where you're just asking the question, what am I going to do? When I was a younger man, I had this experience someone was speaking the gospel, I had this experience of like physical pain in my chest. It was like I'd been cut to the heart and out of my heart was pouring all of this hot, venomous guilt and shame. And I was made aware of my brokenness. For the first time I saw the desolation of the plague of locusts. And my only response was, "What am I going to do?" And left to our own devices, we'll start coming up with plans, right? It's like new, new, new Year's resolutions, like, "Okay, from now on, I'm definitely not going to take advantage of drunk girls," all right? So from now, from now okay, from now on, and um, those, you know, like. Drugs that are illegal, I'm not going to do them. All right, so you start compiling this list when you're left to your own devices. But when it's the gospel that has cut you to the heart and your response is, what shall we do? Then you need to know that the response is Peter in verse 38 and 39. He gives you the perfect response. Repent. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off for all whom the lord our god will call so this morning everyone look right at me because this is all right this is this is the bit this is the thing. This is why we exist. We want to put before you this glorious good news. This glorious invitation from God himself on the basis of all that he's done for you to simply receive what he's already done. If you're cut to the heart and you're asking, what should I do? In one sense, God says, nothing really. Just receive what I've already done for you. And having received it by faith, Peter says, repent. That is, turn away from that path you were going down, that path of self-worship, self-determination. Turn away from that path and follow my son, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. Be baptized, which is all about demonstrating to the watching world that I am now a believer, that I have died with Jesus, that I've been raised with Jesus, that my life is now his, that I am redeemed, that I've been adopted into God's family, be baptised to demonstrate all of that truth. And he says, this promise and this pathway is for everyone. He doesn't get them in a line and say, how many times have you been to church? And, 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 and have you done that, um, you know, that confirmation class? And, and then I mean, are you giving regularly? 10%. All right. Okay. right? he doesn't do that. He says, no, it's for all of you, even those of you who are far off. He doesn't say, first of all, come near Spend the next year cleaning yourself up. He doesn't say, God is in love with a future version of you. He says, no, right now, God loves you and is pursuing you and is inviting you into the fullness of his kingdom now. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why the name of the Lord Jesus? Because it's not in your name that you're being baptized. It's not on your merits. It's not on your good record. It's on the record of the perfect life of the Lord Jesus. Now the question is, for the historian Luke, the question he wants to answer is, what happens when in response to a great sermon like that, a bunch of people are cut to the heart, are re- repentant, are baptised, and then start meeting together, what, what does that look like? And he chronicles for us a picture of what that looks like. And so I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. So what you need to do is make sure you have open Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47. I'm going to get you to do a little bit of study I'm going to hand it over to you and for four or five minutes, you're in groups of sort of four, five, six or seven, you're going to look at this passage, you're going to come up with what in our common, like modern parlance would be sort of um, mission, vision and values and rhythms, right, of the early church. You're going to come up with what those are and then you're going to tell me what they are and then we'll be done, okay? So here it is, the picture of the Early church, verse 41 to 47. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. You got your homework, get together, four or five minutes, and then you're going to come back to me with the vision and values and rhythms of that first church. All right, all right, all right. Let's chat for a second. Let's chat for a minute. So tell me from your discussions, what are the kind of the values, core values of this first church? commitment to God and to each other. Yep. Good. Selflessness and joy. Those things go together. Man. Yep, that's right. Other things? Meeting together. Meeting together and eating together. Yep. Passion. Yeah. Yes. Nice one. Passion. Generosity. Yep. Ah, oh, give that man a gold star. They were making all of life all about Jesus. Interesting. Interesting. Sincerity. Yeah. Not much nominalism in the early church. Yeah. Sincerity of belief. Yep. Teaching. Yep, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, It's another value that they had. What are the kind of rhythms that they have that are outlined for us? I don't think Luke wants this to be an exhaustive sort of hour-by-hour history of the early church, but he he mentions some rhythms that they do in community. What, What have they got there? about verse 46. They got a daily rhythm there. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. So here's what I want us to get to this morning. And you just let this, I'm not going to tie this up in a neat bow. I just want to let this marinate, okay, over the next week think about whether, remember last week we talked about some of Acts is prescriptive and some of it is descriptive. So some of it is a prescription for our church. This is what we should be doing. Some of it is descriptive, just a description of what the church was doing then. So I want you to ask yourself and one another, what in this passage, 42 to 47, is prescriptive for our church? What, what, of these things, should we be doing? Sometimes, when you suggest, as we have over the years, that we ought to be doing some of these things, people say, Well, you, your service is going to go for way more than two hours if you do this. And that's the point, right? It's not about church service. This is about all of life being all about Jesus. This is about meeting together daily. They met in the temple courts, that is like a big place, a big group, a church. And they met in people's homes. They ate, they prayed, they taught, they listened, they had fellowship with one another. So think about what, what what needs to change about our church. I'm throwing this over to you. This is a sort of the most democratic we get in the Anglican church, all right? What do you think? What needs to change about our church to be more like this church to the extent that we should be? Like this church one thing I want to commend to you, and this is something this is the thing that we 've been working hardest on during the week um, as a staff is getting our small group network functioning in a healthy way and um, Simon BC, who uh, you might have heard preach a few weeks ago, um, he has been volunteering his time he now works out of our office and he's been doing a lot of work. Some of you have been contacted by him. he is trying to get to the bottom of how we can have a functioning, healthy, fruitful, small groups ministry. And our hope is that it will look a little bit like this that we've just seen. So here's what I'm saying to you now. From now or probably a week or so until for the next few months, we'll be running a sort of incubator group, small group, for potential leaders and facilitators of these small groups. If you feel like God might be equipping you or calling you to be one of those leaders, one of those facilitators of one of these groups, then you want to get into that group and we're just going to meet from week to week and sort of workshop what it looks like to be a small group, train you, equip you for a couple of months, a few months maybe, and then we're going to send you out to start your own groups. So if God is calling you in in any way, shape, or form to be a part of that, then please come and see me afterwards. We'll get you plugged into that group. And then from towards the end of the year, around summertime, and hopefully until the day of the Lord, we will be meeting and fellowshipping together in homes throughout the week. That's all I wanted to say. Please let that sort of ruminate for the next week. Let me know. You can email me. You can call me. You can talk to me next week. If you want to, you can speak to the congregation. If you think that God has something that you you need to say to us about this, you can speak to us next week. Um, just just hit me up uh, ahead of time, and um, yeah, and we'll see what God does through this. Let me pray for us as we finish up. Father, as a church, we want to be shaped by Your Word. We don't just want to be shaped by the culture or by the leaders or by personalities or by um, just the latest fad. We want to be shaped by your timeless truth. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom to know how to shape our church according to your revealed will. Please be with us throughout this series. Help us to continually be shaped by it. Lord, please save us from becoming proud or inflexible or just stuck in our own ways. Please help us to be always reforming, always changing. Please help us to make all of life all about Jesus. For we pray it in his good name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.